morning, we're just, we're just jumping right into the deep end of the pool. There is no shallow end this morning, okay? So you're going to hear lots of, lots of words, and uh, I, w- I promise I will not be, uh, you know, I will not make it scandalous just for the sake of being scandalous, but I have to tell you exactly uh, what Scripture says. So how many uh, of you guys would say, I asked for kind of a vote last week about if you were just kind of to, to say, if I'm looking at the trajectory of culture and society, I would say things are going well, they're progressing, we're going to get better and better, and we're just, we just seem to be progressing towards a utopia, and uh, I asked for a thumbs up on that and got none of those. I got one maybe vote, or like I didn't have enough information about that. And so this morning, it's the same kind of vote, but I say this, how many of you think that the, the point you live in culture today is the most um, depraved, sexually, uh, loose, moral, kind of world that I'll say that has ever been in the history, in the course of human history. Are we living in that now? I want your thumbs up if you say yeah. Uh, thumbs down if you say no, we're, we're somewhere, that, that belongs to somebody else, that title belongs to somebody else. Thumbs in the middle is like, it's been about the same. We're, we're definitely uh, nudging the line, okay? So what's your vote this morning? Thumbs up, thumbs middle, thumbs down. That's interesting. Okay. So uh, just this week, uh, this has been happening uh, quite, quite frequently, but you'll hear something like, um, you know, they're, they're banning books in the schools. And it's not that they're banning books in schools. They're trying to ban explicit pornographic books out of like elementary schools and middle schools. And so um, there have been lots of um, uh, just uh, parents and uh, proactive pastors that have been going to school, school council meetings uh, lately, school boards, and just reading these books aloud. And they've been turning off microphones and they've been uh, shut down and told they can't read these things. You say, well, if it's good enough to put in the libraries for our kids that are that young, can't, you, can't your ears hear the same kind of thing? And they don't want to hear that. So Senator, uh, I think it was Kennedy this week, did the same thing. He was reading it in, uh, into Congress and they thought the same thing. It was, it was scandalizing to their ears, scandalizing to their ideas about the world. Now, um, that's not true. It's a, it's a feigned pearl clutching. That means they, they're not really scandalized by it. And, and the reason why it seems to be so particularly depraved is because it does reach to like such a young, young age. And so um, to get to the idea this morning that we need to get to is not just that we're looking at, oh, how bad culture is. So I'll, I'll just, if you weren't here last week, the point of last week was not how bad it is in the world. Yes, it's bad in the world. The thing that Jude is telling us to do is to contend for the faith and he has us looking internally. So what does that mean for the church, okay? And so this is going to take some, some really uh, meaningful and like purposeful uh, steps this morning that you need to be uh, aware of and having in, in your pocket, not just an idea that we need to be able to condemn what's going on out, uh, out in the world. So help me out this morning. Uh, we're just going to walk through creation for just a second. So if you, if you need it, you can flip it open to Genesis 1. And uh, in the beginning, God... What? He created. And um, it says that uh, God actually in the beginning created. And he created, and the earth was formless and void. It didn't have any structure to it. And then it goes into, uh, progress through God creating different things. And what he's doing in creating things is he's bringing structure. He, he's bringing um, purpose, design, and he's bringing boundaries to what didn't exist before. So he creates light 
in darkness, and he separates the light from the darkness. And it says the, the earth was formless and void, and so he separated the waters above from the waters below, and then he brought out dry ground, right? And so what he's doing uh, in that moment is he's creating uh, boundaries and structures. Now, um, if, you, uh, if you had the privilege of ever owning a coloring book when you were a kid, right, you would, uh, you would have a picture of something, and, um, you know, it would be, it would be, now forgive my drawing here. What is that? It's a flower, okay? What color is it? There. <laughs> You're like, right now it's white, okay? But what color could it be? Yeah, it could be any color, uh, whatever God designed it to produce. And the stem would be what? All right, so you would take your crowns and you'd color that, that thing in, right? And um, how about this? If, uh, you know, I'm really pulling out the skills for you this morning, okay? What is this? Yeah, what color is it? Yellow. And this is a, yeah, okay, it's a cloud and it's probably something like white, right? And up here is the, it's the sky and it's blue, right? And down here is the earth. And what color is that? Maybe brown or, brown or green or something, right? Now, um, the fact that I didn't put any colors on here and I drew these black borders around it, I would say, is, uh, is the ground color up here in the sky? Not really, right? What, what, is, the, what is the boundary? Like when you, when you walk around, when you see creation, are, you, are there black lines everywhere that limit the color? Keep it in? No, right? So what God, is, what is God has done is he's, he's created boundaries for things that we, we acknowledge, right? We know that if we look at a flower, it's, it's just there. Like that, that color is because that is the, the flower and that's the, 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 the design that it has. Like that's just what it is. And we don't look at the colors in, um, and, and they don't like bleed out from where they're supposed to be. Does that make sense? Okay, so, so we know this like, just by basic, when you're two, three years old, how old are you when you can color? I don't know. Two. Let's go with that. Yeah? Like, it doesn't take a lot of intellect is what I'm trying to get to, okay? So God has, in creation, he, he, he separates things. He, he, he makes purposes. He gives them all domains, okay? He's put a place for things, and then he gives it a purpose. So he'll say something like, hey, he put the, 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 um, the lights in the sky, to govern the seasons and to tell time so that people could look at the stars and navigate and see things. So they have a purpose, but they also have a domain. The stars don't also belong on the earth, right? They have a place they're supposed to stay, but they serve the purpose by remaining in that domain. So what I'm trying to get you to connect with this morning is that, um, that, that purpose and distinction is what creates beauty. Now, you say, why, why did you jump to beauty? Okay, well, so when you go and you're starting to color in your coloring book and, and you want to color it in, you, you say, well, I, I want to color this flower purple, okay? And so you do that. And then you want the sky to be like various colors of blue. And so, so you do that. But you don't arbitrarily and uh, without, without any distinctions have the colors run into themselves, right? You don't just say, well, I'll, I'll just paint outside of the lines for no particular reason, right? So... Um, what, what is it that makes something beautiful? And I'm going to argue this morning that is the boundaries and the distinctions staying where they're at. Um, something like um, music. You could, you could have all of the notes played at the same time. Oh, but it's not on. So uh, if, I, if I play all the notes at the same time, 
And the keyboard, can you unmute it for me? Maybe not. <laughs> it's the, it's the, there we go, okay. Okay, so the distinction is not that I played all the notes at the same time, that doesn't make anything beautiful, right? And even somebody like um, Beethoven, who was deaf, right? Didn't just say, well, I'm making beauty by, by playing everything without distinction, right? He, he put the notes in a particular order, and it's the separation in the notes that make the melody that we can say that is a beautiful song. So, like, you know, right? Something like that, right? Instead of just playing all the notes at the same time without separation and distinction. Are you with me? Okay? And even a blind painter doesn't just throw the, the, the color onto the canvas without some intention. So it's actually the separations, the distinctions, which create beauty. And God has given separations and distinctions in, in his created order. And we're doing all of this so that we can see that his intention is in creation to give us some um, purposes. So among the things that he's creating, he creates two, um, two distinct things within one species. He says that as he's creating, he creates uh, all the land animals. He creates things that live in the sea. They have their domain. They have their purpose. And they produce after their kind. But he especially creates man. He, creates, he makes man in his own image, he said. And the image of God, he created him, male and female. So there's two distinctions. And male doesn't cross over to female. And female doesn't cross over to male. But they are still both created in God's image. And God gave them a purpose and a domain. It says he blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And um, can you click my slide for me? I guess that one's also, there we go. Fill the earth and subdue it. And um, now we're fighting each other, I think. There we go. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, now. If you will, let, let me read our passage in Job this morning. We're going to be uh, verses 5 through 8. And uh, here's what it says. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay, with, excuse me, stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness, and tell the judgment of that great day. And just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire, yet in like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh. They reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. So all of this is coming under the idea, uh, last week we talked about, that, that Jude ex exhorts the people, who are called, who are kept by God to contend earnestly for the faith. That means to, to, to fight. The word in there, the, the root of it was, remember, agonize. So to put into some kind of sweat equity the preservation of the faith that was once for all handed down. And he's reminding us, he's calling us now for a reminder this morning. He recognizes our need to be reminded. And so I, I'm reminding you this morning of basic truths, and they're basic because they were laid out foundationally, as in, in Genesis 1, what the, what the purposes are of creation and how transgressing those borders and rebelling against God's designs creates problems and brings judgment. That's Jude's, that's Jude's reminder to us, and that's my reminder to you this morning. So let me pray for uh, the sermon and for the rest of our time in the Word, and we'll get to it. 
Father, I pray that uh, you would just help me this morning to um, focus on um, only what should be said that would be um, edifying to your people. I just ask that you would um, help us to get our arms around uh, a subject here that um, we don't often deal with in church. And so I think that um, we just need uh, grace this morning for hearing and for speaking. Uh, keep me from error, and uh, may this all be for your glory. So, Father, equip us with what we don't have right now, which is um, the, the spiritual sense to, to grasp what is true and to see it, to behold it, and to hold on to it. Father, would you do that for us and in us, that it would be for um, our good and your glory. So pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Okay. Talking about color theory, because the idea that color is actually only beautiful in design by distinction. So separation, borders, boundaries is what makes design beautiful and what helps uh, uh, bring to fullness or fruitfulness God's purposes in created order. And so um, let's just take this uh, verse by verse. He's going to, uh, Jude is going to give us three examples this morning. As I said, he likes to talk in threes. And so he's going to give us three examples of people or groups uh, um, that have um, transgressed the boundaries they were giving, given specifically in the area of sexual boundaries and indulging the flesh and immorality and how that has um, brought judgment, not just on them, but it's brought judgment on them for our, our um, reminding and for our teaching. So it, it's... Um, it would do us good to look at their example and um, heed the warning, okay? So in verse 5, he says this, I want to remind you that, um, of, of something you already fully knew, once some, something you once fully knew, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So Jude recognizes the need for us to be reminded of something, even though he's saying it's something that you already know about. Now, I think the challenge for us, uh, particularly in this day and age, is that Jude's going to make three references to things that either are foreign to your ears or you may not know the story that well. And he's, he's, he's saying these things are, should be at hand for you, and they're not at hand for us. And so the example is, is, is sort of removed from where we're at, and so I'm going to have to really ex- dig into the details of these stories to help you see why he's using these examples for us. So we live in a day of um, where, where truth is questioned, and we replace um, old truths with new novelty things. We like things that are new, and we think the newer thing is better, okay? And this, is, uh, this happens all the time. You, you, you want to know an answer to something, so you Google the answer to something, okay? And you just presume whatever that answer is to be correct, it's, it's, it, you're, you're, you're giving it authority that it has not earned, and we like the immediacy of this kind of response. And what I, I'm trying to tell you and what Jude's trying to tell you this morning is you need to hearken to old truths and not listen to new questioning ideas about old truths. And that's exactly how um, Satan leads uh, men to, to sin, is he, he asks them a question about a new truth, something they hadn't quite considered yet, about the boundaries that God had set. Now, is it true that God said this? Because 
And then he adds to that, what God really is trying to keep you from is that you'll be like him or that he's trying to keep something from you. And so he gets them to question God's authority and the boundaries that God actually set, which is exactly what happens for us today. And so we need to be reminded of old truths. Jude's point is not that these stories are the only thing that teach a specific truth, but that is a consistent truth and it has been a foundational truth from the beginning. And so one of the challenges of... Um, just being a pastor today, is this, this problem of novelty. It's much easier to get a 20-second soundbite on uh, Instagram or, or YouTube about something that you want to change your mind or your life. And you've, we have, I won't say you, the society at large, especially the church, has mistaken new information for life change. That if you learn something new, that you are different. That's the same thing as learning a different kind of exercise and then going and doing it once and saying, now I'm in fit, now I'm strong, okay? You don't get strong after doing one exercise. And there is nothing new. There is only old truths that are either rediscovered or that are maybe um, rebranded, but there are no new truths. All truths are old truths. There are new ideas that question old truths, and these are the things that we forsake old truths for. And so this morning, when we think about um, the nature of our, uh, our culture questioning old truths. And, and they, the, 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 the typical criticism or the way that that gets attacked is, well, you're just being, you know, overly fundamentalist or something like that. You're, you're too traditional. And I, I need you to plant your feet firmly on tradition because it's planted in truth. And so if you're looking for some kind of instantaneous dynamic answer to not only um, answer all of the problems in culture or, or what we face as a church at large, it's not going to happen by new information given to you. It's not going to be, I will not preach you life change. I cannot show you a new exercise and make you fit, right? And so this, again, brings the fact that you have to engage with those things and actually have them apply in your own heart and life. And so remembering then is uh, the action that we're told to do. And so how do we actually how do we actually remember? And that's what I'm trying to get our arms around this morning. So what is it that he's calling us to remember? And what does remembering actually look like? So my purpose is not to help you discover new truths or to present anything new, but to present old things to you that you need to be reminded of. Okay? Old things to you that you need to be reminded. So the nature of our reality is one that is restrictive. You, you know this, you abide by this, but wherever you can, you question the boundaries. We, we question the boundaries because we think that without restriction, Things get better. That's, that's the lie of progressivism, the lie of uh, enlightenment, that chasing knowledge, that things get better as we throw off the restraint of the dark ages and how people used to think. But if you think in this new enlightened way, you can erase the black boundaries and you can go outside, you can color whatever color you want for anything that you want. And you can do that, but is your, is your picture still beautiful? Is it actually doing anything that you think that it's going to get you by quote unquote, expressing your freedom, okay? And so that is the question. Now, after this, he says, I need to remind you of these things. He immediately goes to the first example, which is Jesus who rescued a people out of Egypt. Okay, now um, I have to be, I have to choose how much of this I, I can teach this morning because we're not going to be able to teach all of this. But the first example he gives is Israel. The second example that he gives uh, is, are the angels who transgressed their boundaries. And the last one is the man or mankind in Sodom and Gomorrah. And they, the, the three examples have um, three results and because of the way that they transgress the boundaries. And so the, the first group was delivered out of Egypt and they're destroyed. That's what we're told. They're laid low. 
in the wilderness. And the, the angels, it says they transgress the, the dwelling place that they were supposed to stay in, and they are trapped in gloomy darkness. And that's their punishment. And then the last one is pursuing an unnatural desire is what happens in Sodom and Gomorrah. And that city and those people were demolished. Those are the three uh, judgments that are brought upon people who transgress the boundaries, who say, I want to express my freedom. I don't, I, I, the, the black lines aren't actually there. I'll paint and color however I want to. And so the, um, the first example that he gives is Jesus rescuing a people out of Egypt, which is interesting because if you read the story in Exodus, you will not find the name Jesus in there. You will when you get to Joshua because that's Jesus' name is Yeshua, but that's not what he's asserting here. He's saying that Jesus was the one that was present there, that Jesus is the one who actually took the people out of the land and rescued them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, sort of, it will unpack this in a way that will be more concise than me explaining the whole thing to you. So 1 Corinthians 10 says uh, this, I don't want you to be unaware, Corinthians, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So when they were wandering in the wilderness, they had a cloud over them to help you know, protect them. And they were also uh, passing through the, the um, sea together. And they all ate the same spiritual, um, uh, excuse me, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, there's a lot there, but when, uh, when they were thirsty in the wilderness, Moses struck a rock and it poured forth water. And Paul is saying that that provision was Christ. Now, Christ was there. He's present lots of times as the angel of the Lord. He goes before them. He's at the tent of meeting when Moses is there. He's, um, he's the pillar of fire. He's all of these things, and he shows up in the story in all these different ways. And what Jude is asserting is that Jesus was the one who rescued the people out of the land. Interestingly, the problem with this is not that Jesus wasn't good enough to them. It was that they didn't like that leadership. And so with most of them, God was not pleased because they were overthrown. That's the same idea, the same destruction that he's talking about here. They were destroyed in the wilderness. And I want you to notice specifically that most of them, that out of all of the people that were rescued out of Egypt, out of slavery, uh, were delivered miraculously through the plagues and got to plunder the people on the way out. With most of them, God was not pleased. That's a, that's, a, that's a noteworthy detail because only a remnant of people were faithful. And that same remnant applies um, throughout this, this story of the people in the wilderness. And they had rebelled in several different ways. Now, when these things took place as examples for us, okay, their, their doing in the desert and their judgment because of what they did in their rebellion, it's is written down for us to observe it and go, I ought not to do that. I should not do that. Jesus has rescued me. I will not act in the way that they act. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, for it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. That little euphemism there, they rose up to play, has to, has to do with the idea that at the golden calf, what they did is they told Aaron, right, hey, make for us a golden calf so we can worship the Lord. We don't know where Moses is. And it says they, they rose up to eat and drink play. That means they indulge in sexual immorality with one another. So we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. As judgment as when uh, Moses comes back down and he pleads for the people. And the result of this is that he grinds up the golden calf. He pours it in the water. And everybody that engaged in this... Uh, drinks it, and it dies. That's the punishment that happens to them. So we must not put Christ 
to the test, as some of them did, and they were destroyed by serpents. They were grumbling about the food and not having food to eat. And so do not grumble, as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now this is important. It has to do with the first question I asked, which is where do we fall in the, in the scheme of depravity in culture? Okay? No temptation. There is nothing, there is no presentation of a truth or false truth that you face that has not been presented before as an opportunity to seize for yourself autonomy and freedom, to decide for yourself what you'll define, what design is, what purpose is, and to to make it uh, your own. No temptation in that way has come to you that was not common to all men. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may endure it. So we have these three examples. At the golden calf, when... um, they rose up, indulged in sexual immorality when they grumbled against uh, the provision of God. And, and then uh, there's another one where before they are going to um, get into the promised land, they send spies into the land and they go and they perceive that there's giants in the land. And they come back and only two of the spies, right, one remnant of the people have a faithful report, but everybody else is scared of the giants in the land. And because they did not trust God to go in and take the land as he said he would give to them, that they're judged and they're uh, told that they must uh, stay in the wilderness. That whole generation dies off and for 40 years they wander and Joshua is the one that leads them in. So these three instances um, teach us about the boundaries and trusting God in faith about the, his provision for us and about his, the, the boundaries that he sets and how he's freed us from our past. Okay, he took them out of Egypt, but they took Egypt with them. They, they created an they were idol worshipers in Egypt. And as he brought them out, he said, you're my people now. I'm your God. Serve me alone. But they couldn't do that. They wanted something they could behold, they could get their hands around. And then not only did they do that, but then they worshiped that in a really um, egregious way, which grieved God and caused their own judgment. Grumbling against God's provision is just an overall, I don't trust um, God what you're doing, how you're leading. And even though you've been faithful in the past, I don't trust you for the future. And then most of all, I don't trust God for salvation, which is that the promised land that was given to them, I will overcome your enemies. It doesn't matter what the giants look like. I will give you this land as a promise, as a covenant with you. And so what you need to see out of this is that because there's um, groups within these, the 23,000 fell. And then in um, the grumbling, there was a a plague that struck. And in uh, the spies, only Caleb and Joshua are preserved. And of the generation, only those below a certain age so it tr- truth is not established by consensus, okay? So it doesn't matter if everybody else rises up to play. It doesn't matter if, um, you know, Moses is gone and the guy that's supposed to be in authority, if the leadership um, structure is absent at the moment and the guy that's supposed to be in charge tells you it's okay to do something, that doesn't establish truth either. It's not established by leadership, authority, or consensus. It's established by what God has said. And so they re- reap judgment on themselves for taking for themselves autonomy and deciding they will establish their own boundaries. So that's the first example he gives. And now he moves to angels. So he says, don't indulge in sexual immorality. Don't grumble against God's provision for you and trust him to bring you to salvation. Now, he, removes, he moves to the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but they left their proper dwelling and he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Now, this one is 
um, more obscure to us and uh, will be foreign to your ears. And again, this is, I don't have the time to teach the whole thing. But after God has, um, has finished creation, he begins to observe something about man. Uh, right after uh, he expels um, Adam and Eve from the garden, they go, they procreate, and man is multiplying on the earth, and God observes something specific over and over. You'll see the, the phrase several times, that at the inclination of man's heart is evil. And this evil is multiplying on the earth. But um, in uh, Genesis 6, we get um, just before the flood, a special kind of evil which happens. And we're told that, um, not, not very many specifics, but that the, the sons of God looked upon the daughters of men and they lusted after them. Okay? And so what's essentially being talked about here is the angels transgressed the boundaries that they were given and they went in to the daughters of men and they took them for their wives, it says in Genesis 6, and they created a high, this, these giants that later on the people uh, escaping in the Exodus were afraid of. They created this um, hybrid offspring and this was one of the reasons, besides the fact that every inclination of the heart of man was evil, why God brings the flood. Can I say that again? Okay. The example he's using is that the angels were given a, a boundary. They were um, given a, a position. They have a purpose. They're God's messengers. They glorify him. They, they do lots of things. But one of the things they're not supposed to do is come to the physical world and interact with, uh, with us in this way. And they, they do that. I can't explain the mechanics because we're not given that. So there's a lost book called the Book of Enoch, which gives some more detail about this. It's not part of our Bible, but it does exist, at least in partiality. And so it gives some more specifics about this. And in fact, um, Jude quotes the Book of Enoch to, to, to make reference to this. And this, um, this rebellion of the angels is referenced in other books, not just in um, Jude, but Peter also references the same thing in the same way with the same result. And so the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, they left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. Now, um, the, uh, the interesting thing about, I think, the, the angels is not so much, well, how did the mechanics of that work out? Um, it's what was happening that caused God to bring the flood in, in that moment and what was he hoping to accomplish by bringing the flood? Well, he says that evil was multiplying on the face of the land. So I'm going to read just a couple of um, excerpts out of Genesis um, 6 so that you can kind of track with the story. Man began to multiply on the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them. And the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And so they took as wives any that they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. And so the Lord saw in verse 5 that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created on the face of the land and the animals and the creeping things and the birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. All the things that God spent time creating, giving their domain and their purpose, he, he sees that they're being transgressions, being um, profaned in a way, especially in this particular way. Now, the, the result of this um, union between uh, angels and man is, is not, um, it's not a new creation. It's a demi-creation. It's a, it's a mixture. It's putting two things together that, that weren't supposed to go together. And so it makes something less than, not more than. When you think of creating, 
you, you would think I'm producing something new. Two things come together and they produce something new. Well, that's not what happened here. So it's two things coming together that were not meant to go together and they produce something less. And after this, um, God, God uh, brings the flood, as we know, and he, he, uh, he makes a covenant with Noah after the flood subsides. So in um, Genesis 9, um, after uh, the, the mankind has been wiped out, and these hybrid offspring have been wiped out. He tells again the same thing to Noah and his family that he had told to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on earth. Multiply in it. Then God said to them, Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth, with you as many as came out of the ark, for it is the beast is is for the beasts of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall uh, there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant between I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. See, I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you on the earth. So what does God do um, to... Uh, to show, to show um, Noah that he will never again wipe out the, uh, the earth in this way. He creates a rainbow, right? Now, you guys all know the colors of the rainbow, so I'm going to very quickly try to paint these on here. There's also another... Um, use of the rainbow in our modern world, right? It happens to be the, uh, the flagship example or the flag, the, uh, the sign, the symbol of the sexual agenda. And it's not just, um, it used to be the, the, the gay flag. Or, but now um, more and more things are being added to it so that it represents all kinds of things. And uh, I'll tell you what, they're, what they represent here in just a minute. But God had created this uh, rainbow, and it's a bow specifically because it shows that God's, uh, he's not going to use um, his uh, enmity towards the evil of man to wipe them out. And so the bow being a weapon of war is hung up uh, over um, in, the, in the house so that it shows that it's a time of peace. And so God says... I. I'm not going to, to do this regardless of um, the wickedness of the earth and how much it uh, seems to multiply. So what is it, guys, I grabbed the wrong one. What is it that uh, keeps the rainbow colors separate? nothing. They stay within their own domain because that's how God's designed. They're just different frequencies of, you know, photons uh, bouncing off one another, and they create the different spectrum of light, but the rainbow is one unified thing. It's not separate things all um, together, but they don't arbitrarily run into one another. They stay exactly within the confines of how they've been designed. Now, the irony of 
the fact that this is a, uh, a, a symbol, that, that uh, the very symbol that the, the sexual revolution uses to represent their movement today is the symbol that God gave to man when he had wiped them out for, for a sexual revolution, for, ste- for stepping outside of the boundaries that God had set for design and purpose. And so what the, uh, the, the, the gay and the, the trans agenda and the lesbian and whatever else is out there today says that you have to find your own individuality here and you can express yourself and, and you can choose uh, each one of these things and it doesn't matter uh, you know, if today you're red, tomorrow you can be purple. Okay? And then after that, you can be green. And there is no real, there's no real, real um, boundaries between these because you can choose no matter what it is. One day you can be something else, right? And so the reality is that if you paint or you have color without distinction or without boundaries, it doesn't create a, a more beautiful picture. What did I say at the beginning? It's, it's, it's the boundaries and distinctions which makes the rainbow distinct for what it is. is it, am I wrong? No. Here's why. Because what happens when you combine all of the colors together is not that it creates a, a, a more beautiful rainbow, right? If you start painting without distinction and so orange can go into blue and purple can go into green and yellow can go in, uh, into red, all these things does not create a more beautiful kind of rainbow because we're expressing our creative freedom, right? It's, it's God created some boundaries, but we don't really like the boundaries that God's created. And so what we're going to do is just decide, we'll, we'll blur the lines, we'll erase the distinctions, and we'll go ahead and do whatever it is that we want to do. And so we think that we're, we're painting a more colorful picture without those old, stupid truths that keep us separate, right? And it doesn't make a more beautiful design. Objectively, you don't go look at that and go, oh, that's beauty, right? Am I wrong? Nobody looks at that and says, that's a beautiful picture, you might get some, some kind of thrill out of, you know, a, 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 a flower being the wrong color, or the sky being, you know, a, a, the wrong color if you were painting a picture. But in reality, when all of the things are erased, when all of the boundaries are removed and things are just allowed to bleed into one another and we say, uh, truth be forgotten in this, it doesn't make a more beautiful picture. It makes a less beautiful picture. So here's what's happened. In the seizing of autonomy and defining for ourselves and removing all the boundaries, we've created an ugliness in the design. We've decided that we can create for ourselves a better picture, but in reality, we're painting a much worse picture, which is why when you look out, you don't say, we're progressing to be better and better. How beautiful is it that people are just doing whatever they want? Isn't that great? And it doesn't produce, there's no fruitfulness in it. Homosexuality cannot produce uh, offspring. God designed male and female to come together and produce after their kind. So there's, there's, a, there's a lack of fruitfulness. There's a lack of beauty in it. And so overall, well, um, we're seeing this happen and nobody's addressing it in a way that it seems to be sufficient. Living without distinctions will not produce health, beauty, or fruitfulness. It produces more brokenness. It produces broken marriages, broken families, infertility, it, um, Uh, It's the source of diseases because we're going outside of God's design. The old truths that have been thrown away. You say, well, that's out there. That's not in here. The problem is that we have um, allowed the the incremental encroachment on the, the truths of what design actually means and how we're supposed to abide by the boundaries to infiltrate not just our minds, but into younger generations. 
And that's the problem. That we have not been good about, not, not just expressing what we're against, but why we're for what God has expressed as his design and why he's designed it that way. For your good and for your flourishing. Okay? So it's not so much about, ooh, that's gross, I don't like that, so much as this is what God's designed us to be like. And you see that it doesn't produce that if you don't abide within those restrictions. This is what it produces. And we're afraid to call that ugly because we think that's um, too dramatic or we're, or we're condemning somebody. So we're going to get to that in just a second. I'm way ahead of myself and I'm sorry. All right. So he, he gives this example of the, the rainbow. And this has been seized now, ironically, in the deepest of ways for the, the, the symbol of, a, uh, of the sexual revolution. And that's exactly what it is. It's taking God's covenant to not bring immediate judgment on the wickedness of men for our transgressing the boundaries and, and uh, essentially thumbing our noses at God. And I think that's um, just a, a perfect example of the pride of man to think that we can redefine things for ourselves. So let's move to the third example. It doesn't get better. So this is probably the most difficult. So... Um, he says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Um, all, of these, all of these stories are really at the beginning. Remember, he's reminding us of the old truths. So just a little bit later, after the flood, after the angels had transgressed their boundaries, in Genesis 19, we have the story of Sodom and Gomorrah which is relative to the story of Abraham and Lot. Abraham had moved, and um, him and Lot were, were so blessed by God that um, their, their flocks and their people were multiplying, and they decided to split ways. And so, um, you know, Abraham says, hey, Lot, I will give you first choice. You choose where you want to go, and I'll take, you, you say right, I'm going left. So Lot sees the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He thinks that the plains there are more fertile for his flocks and sheep and whatever. And he goes that direction. And it says he pitches his tent towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, he eventually winds up there. Okay? So let that be another lesson to you. Okay? You can only move closer and closer to the boundary before it pulls you in. So he winds up in Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, this eventually requires um, Abraham to go in and, and rescue Lot. He's, he has to rescue Lot twice. But this particular time um, that... Uh, the, the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are known for a particular thing, a particular kind of sin. And I want to pick up the story there in Genesis 19, and I'll start in um, verse 4. So two angels, oh, excuse me, let me start at the beginning of 19, and then I'll kind of jump around for a second. So the two angels came to Sodom. So, so two angels are coming to, to visit Lot. And they came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate, and Lot saw them. He rose to meet them, and he bowed himself to the face of the ground and said, My lords, may uh, be pleased to turn aside and to come to your servant's house. So he, these two angels come. They're in the likeness of man. And Lot sees them, and he invites them to his house. And so they go, and uh, he persuades them to come. And um, in verse 4 is um, really where things get dicey. It says, but before they lay down, that me his guests, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, both young and old, it says, to the last man. Okay, let me say that in a different order. Every single man in Sodom, young and old, came to this house. Why? Okay, and said, my Lord, or excuse me, and, uh, and said, to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? 
Bring them out to us that we may know them. Again, another euphemism for sexuality. These men, young and old, every single man in Sodom has come to Lot's house to have their way to gang rape. These two men have shown up. I'm sorry for if that scandalizes you. That's what's happening in this moment, okay? That's what's happening. And so Lot says this. Lot went out to the entrance uh, uh, and, he, and he, begged with, he begged them. I beg you, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters. This goes from bad to worse. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you. And you may do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. The loss of the older generation to depravity will always be passed down to the younger generation because it can't be reproduced naturally. It's done by indoctrination. And so that's exactly what's happened. The young men, the young boys here are doing what they see modeled for them. And that's why it's so egregious and so bad that they're putting these kinds of explicit materials in, um, into schools because it's, it's training kids, it's grooming them. Okay, that's the word, that's the easy word, okay? To, te- to, to think about sexuality in the wrong ways. And so what we have here is um, the normalization, or the, clearly 4,000 years ago is about when this happened. So we're not new onto the, onto the uh, cultural scene here of sexual uh, revolution and homosexuality being rampant, okay? Or, or for it to even transgress the lines of what we think about as an appropriate age for somebody to engage in sexual activity, right? We're talking about young boys who, here who are um, likely experiencing like the kinds of things that we see today with the, with the trans movement and saying, well, you can just, um, yeah, at three years old, you can definitely choose your gender, right? You know that. You can make these kinds of choices. The progression of Romans 1 lays it out like this, that as soon as man focuses inward instead of seeing that God created and he has designed for things, as soon as that happens, they worship the creature rather than the creator, and God gives them over to that depravity, and it progresses. So um, John MacArthur says it usually starts with a sexual revolution, and then it starts with a homosexual revolution, or it continues. And that's exactly what's happened in the 70s and 60s, right? The sexual revolution happened. We throw off, we cast off restraint, and then the homosexual revolution followed just after that, and here we are talking about the fact that somebody might just be, have a problem. They're just minor attracted persons. That's the new term for pedophilia. Okay? This is what's happening in our world, and it's happening actually in the, uh, in the Bible, and it's written down so that we can see what happens when um, that takes a hold of a culture. The perversity is wrong, and here's, here's exactly where you can see the, the eventuality of what Paul argues for in Romans 1. That God gives you over to a depraved mind and you pursue that with reckless abandon and he does not bring you back to common sense. I, this, is a, this is conjecture. So later on in Hebrews, we're told that Lot was a righteous man and that he was grieved by the sin of, that was around him. So the, I feel like the only way to reconcile that statement is this. How does Lot offer up his two daughters to a mob of people that want to have their way with men? Because he knows that they're so depraved that they won't even act on what would be natural. Even though that's unnatural, they won't even act on it. That's where they're at. They've totally missed and been turned over to the depravity of their desire that their lust is gone for what would have been quote-unquote normal but yet outside of the bounds of what God would say is appropriate. 
And so he offers them, but they still refuse that. He's hoping in some way to assuage them. Now, the result of this is not that they say, yeah, okay, fine, we'll take that. Instead, they're more, they're more mad. They're, they're upset. They say, stand back. And they say, um, this fellow, that's Lot, came to sojourn. Like, he's not from Sodom and Gomorrah, and now he's our judge. Can I say that in a different way that you've probably heard before? Who are you to judge me? Right? Well, how can you tell me that that's wrong? You're just some outsider. You're just a stupid Christian. Okay? So this fellow came to sojourn, and now he's become our judge. Now we will deal, deal worse with you than we were going to do to them. So now they've set their sights not on the two men that are in his house, but on Lot himself. For just trying to uh, protect the people that were in his house, okay? And so they pressed in. Now the result of this is that um, Lot Law is saved. They escaped the city, but not everybody escapes the city. So within a group of people, um, Lot's family is, is rescued and they're let out because God's going to destroy the city, and he does. He Flaming uh, uh, tar, basically, is rained down. Now, this is uh, historically uh, proven, like, Geologically, they've uncovered in the area that uh, there was heat and temperatures around 2,000 degrees Celsius, which melted like pottery into uh, glass. So they know that this story is accurate, and it's been recorded for our benefit to see what God does when a people are that depraved in totality. Now, as they're escaping, they didn't all escape because Lot's wife, we're told, looks back, and she is turned to um, a pillar of salt because she can't bear to leave whatever prosperity she thought she had there. So, um, oh, I'm sorry, I did have uh, Genesis 19 there, and that, that, that moment that it's young and old, and that they, um, they want then to do worse to Lot. And so here's where we wind up. That these, these examples have been recorded for us, Jude says, so that we will not practice the same things that they did. That we will not make ourselves, um, uh, exi- uh, uh, bring ourselves under judgment by transgressing the boundaries and transgressing the lines as they did. And now you would say, I think the objection, at least if I'm going to anticipate it, is this, like, I don't have that problem. <laughs> that's not a thing for me. That's, that's I, it, it could be even s- so far reckoned as, like, just preening for the home crowd here because you guys already agree with my position and so here we are casting stones out um, the enemy and, and that would be the exact wrong conclusion. Their, their punishment was eternal fire. It says, in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, this is verse eight now of Jude, these people in like manner relying on their dreams, they defile the flesh, they reject authority and they blaspheme the glorious ones. He's talking about the infiltration of the church with the kinds of ideas that say we need to seize autonomy. We need to seize freedom. And here's why that happens, or here's how that, that, that door actually gets opened. Because we say things like what I just said, which is we assume everybody's on the same page here, and we're not all on the same page here. Because you've, you've assumed a cultural morality that you grew up with, and you know nothing of the cultural morality that the young people are facing. And they're bringing in the kinds of objections that say things like, how can you say that I, um, that I'm a, that I can't go to heaven or I can't be a Christian because of the way that God made me? 
right? Because that's really what it comes down to. Your, your, being, your identity is now equated with your decision. Now, originally, the, the, the language of sexual orientation was, not, was, uh, was rejected by um, the people in that movement because it, it, it indicated that it was a choice. They didn't like that language. Orientation sounds like it's a choice. And so for a long time, they looked for uh, a cause, something in your genes, something, something that you were born with that caused you to be this way. And guess what? They've mapped the whole human genome. They've seen all the DNA, and there's nothing that, that is inherent in you that makes you that way. So now we're back to a, a different thing, and we're told, what, well, what is my gender identity? So we're okay with identity, but the, the fact is, is this. It's, it's the idea that um, you can choose something so that you are celebrated, so that people say that you're worthwhile, that, um, that it matters what it is that you, you think about yourself more than what it is that you actually are or what God's created you to be. And so the idea that you've been born into the wrong body, well, that's okay, but uh, we're okay with choice now, but not the idea of design and not the idea of purpose in design. And so the, the idea that I'm trying to tell you how to judge the world is problematic. We're, we're actually told we're not to bear with those who, who call themselves brothers and sisters in Christ and yet still think uh, or still practice sexual immorality. It's not the fact that there's lots of sin out there. It's the idea of that mentality coming in and, and still being somewhere present underneath. And so uh, I'm going to um, direct our attention then into 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Now, lest you think that we're just banging on a certain drum this morning, notice that before he gets to the practice of homosexuality, he also just talks about sexual immorality in general. The fact that we major on this one sin is, is problematic because it, it reduces as though that's the most important one, the one that we, we really can't have, or the one that's really irredeemable. So he says that none of these people that practice those things will inherit. So in case you're wondering whether or not that you can be trans or be uh, homosexual and also say, I inherit, I'm going to inherit the kingdom of God, you're mistaken. He said they cannot. And then he adds on to them, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. They cannot have it. So there's your list. None of these people can have the kingdom of God. So lest you think it's only this subset of people who... who uh, are, uh, are removed from us. He gives a whole spectrum there of which I think any of us could find ourselves within that spectrum. Have you ever been greedy? Have you ever falsely uh, worshipped something? Have you ever uh, idolized something more than you ought, uh, ought to have? Have you ever stolen something? Yeah. Okay, so we could find ourselves on this list. But then in verse 11, he makes an important transition because he says this, of such were some of you. And he, and it's, he goes on to talk about the past tense version of what you used to be. And so when we allow people to say, my identity is this thing, and that's what I am. I am my sin. I am my choice. Or my choice is what I will be. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the big problem. That's the substance that's missed. 
He says, you were those things, but now you're not those things anymore. You may have practiced that sin. You may have engaged in that way. You may have a propensity to do this, but that's not what you are. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Those were all past tense, meaning they were done, and now you're not that anymore. You've been transitioned because of the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he goes on to, to talk about the fact that um, so, we, so we ought not to identify with the old way of being and say that's who we are or what we are or um, think that we're irredeemable and that's um, our, our, our identity ongoing. But he does warn us then in verse 18, just after that, to flee for, from sexual immorality. So lest you just flatten the, flatten the whole thing and say, well, that's, so then it is all the same. It doesn't really matter. So if I, you know, cheat on my taxes, it's the same thing as practicing sexuality in a, in a proper way. And tra- no. He says, in particular, flee sexual immorality. Why? Because it's the one thing that transgresses God's design in your own flesh. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. And then he's going to extend the metaphor to, to the fact that we are temples of the Holy Spirit if we've been redeemed. The sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have um, from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Okay. So lest you think that I'm trying to get you to rah-rah and we go out there and we, we pick at something, that's not the point. The point is that the, the, the objections you're going to get about um, this way of thinking or what the Bible says about old truths are emotionally based or ignorance based. Emotionally based or ignorance based. The fact that that sounds really mean. How can you X, Y, and Z? It's an emotional reaction to what God has said. But we can all kind of um, objectively say, yeah, there's, there's certain kinds of boundaries that we all understand and uh, we can abide by those, but um, it's, not an, it's not an emotional attack. It's not a personal attack is identifying a falsehood, okay? So to, to miss the idea that saying this is a sin is not the same as saying, therefore, you are um, unreachable. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's that you're pointing to the fact that it's a sin and not who they are, that they can be redeemed from that. That doesn't mean that they won't struggle with it or that there will be a problem. So, and so we're still called to strive with them and to love those who uh, are still struggling with sin, not because they're um, in a special category, but because you too were in that category. There's, there's a, it's a twofold reminder, not just that you weren't that, but that, yeah, one time you were that. So lest you other other people, meaning you, you create this, um, uh, you know, you're pushing them out, you're forsaking them, um, remind yourself that you too were once in that group, but you were washed, you were bought, you were redeemed. And the other is ignorance. I, I see all the time, all the time, Pastors say something like, well, it never says explicitly in Scripture that that's wrong. And it's just totally ignorant. Jude has absolutely demolished that. He said specifically the sin, the sexual immorality that was practiced in Sodom and Gomorrah is your example of what God feels about that kind of sexual immorality. Oh, and in case you're wondering, just um, sex outside of marriage, that too, just um, indulging out, out of pleasure, he also hates that, right? And if you just think, oh, I, you know, in terms of the boundaries of, this gets weird, but I'm just going to say it just so it's out there. Species. 
So that, that, what example do you get from the, the fact that the angels transgress their domain? Well, there, there's actually a, a, quite a bit of things, but just think about this in terms of how, how do we mix technology with humanity, okay? And the more and more that that becomes possible the, is the fact that you are um, doing, you're, you're sort of violating a sacred thing, thinking that you're making something new or more, you're making it less. I don't know how else to say that. There, there may come a day where you can have chips implanted in your brain, okay, that help you do something, right, or that make you have access to the internet without even having a device. Let me just throw that out there, okay? They're already, they're, I mean, not to get totally crazy, but this already exists, that they can see your dreams by um, having electrodes on your, uh, the visual cortex of your brain while you're dreaming, and a computer can composite what it is that you're thinking about and what you're dreaming of. That already exists. So just think about this. The domain of what it means to create and move forward is made less by going outside of what God says, male and female created them in my image to come together to be fruitful and multiply. And this is the domain and the purpose in it and the beauty in it, okay? Wow, we are off the rails and I'm so sorry, but it needs to be said. Okay, so here's this. Flee from sexual immorality in all its forms. And it's not for you to condemn other people. It is for us to hold fast to the truth. Hold up the truth instead of just focusing so much on what you don't like. Instead, say God has a good design for what we can be as humans and how we're supposed to flourish and what we do to come together. Now, holding the beauty in that, but also taking the warning. Because sometimes you need to flee out of the place. If you have the means to get your kids out of school that may be indoctrinating them, get them out. Don't leave them up to their own devices. Okay? Um, I, I, I plead with you to see um, the way that it says he's not, there's no, there's no problem that's being presented to you that you can't overcome that he does not provide a way out of. And he's provided ways out. Like, um, so, so, so avail yourself of those that you might not be found on the wrong side of judgment. And since we're already, I'm just, I'm just going to keep going this morning, okay? I'm, so, I'm sorry, not sorry. Okay, so here's the other part of that. As they, as they are, they being the nation of Israel, as they escape Egypt, they bring Egypt with them. And that's what the other part of this is, where you may have been something, you may have practiced a sin, and that if you keep that as your identity, or oh, we're just... We're just idolaters here. We're just, that we, that's what we do. We make golden calves and we, we worship them in this way. Is to not be, um, to not trust God to give you something else that is um, not just equally satisfying, but more satisfying than what it is that you would set your own sights on to practice your own freedom and practice your own pleasure and you know, your own autonomy. So um, I am certain I've not said enough, but I hope I've said enough to help you to see that this is especially um, a main focus for Jude because of the, the way that it invades the church is not always knock, knock, knock. Um, here I am to lead you astray. It's, it's very um, subversive and it, and it will be introduced through generational kinds of replacement. Your quote-unquote traditional values will live with you until you die. 
And if you've not passed those down and, and taught the next generation why they ought to hold fast to those, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, the things that you need to be reminded of because they're true yesterday, today, and forever, then it will not be perpetuated. So I'll leave that there. Let me pray.